It is a fact of history that while being an important contributor to the idea of wave particle duality, Einstein found it hard to accept the formalism of the uncertainty principle, which introduced the idea of probability into the system. As a historical aside, Professor Vijay Chandru, adjunct visiting professor of interdisciplinary sciences in bioengineering and cyberphysical systems at the Indian Institute of Science, points to the developments in the background of an edifice for mathematics erected by Russell and Whitehead. There is the suggestion that familiarity with this work may have been responsible for the aura of certainty in some of Einstein's early assertions on subjects not falling in the domain of science proper. It is also curious that the company of Goodell at Princeton, who showed up holes in the Russell Whitehead claim that mathematics was a complete system, brings Einstein to a mellower position with respect to the deterministic possibilities of mathematics and opening out to the idea of probabilistic descriptions of systems of matter, which he had once dismissed with the famous quote, God doesn't play dice. In, in effect, when I was thinking about these dialogues, what I thought was one should probably juxtapose these dialogues uh, with sort of the einstein board debates, because that's the, the precursor and perhaps set the tone with which Einstein approaches the dialogue. And, and post-facto, uh, think of the einstein girdle interactions, because the nature of truth and so on gets worked out in those interactions. So, so that, that's how I'm going to structure it, and then I'll end with a small surprise. But <laughs> okay. And I think an important point to be made is that both Einstein and Tagore really viewed each other with a lot of admiration and respect. So there was no, there was no you know, issue of their being, they're differing in opinions with any sort of rancor, right? But Einstein's position, position on the Copenhagen School of Quantum Theory and his objection from 1926 onwards to sort of quantum physics with its probabilistic clouds uh, was severe. I mean, he actually really contested that. And famous statement, you know, God does not play with dice. Uh, not everything depends on the perspective of the observer. Uh, relativity does not imply relativism. You know, these, these all exemplify uh, his, his perspective. Perspective probably spills over, as I, as I mentioned, into his dialogue with Tagore, with his objections to the subjective interpretation of the nature of reality. He was really, Einstein was really considered an idealist uh, in whose worldview both empirical and conceptual uh, are considered to be equally important components of scientific knowledge, right? So, so he, uh, and Tagore's arguments were broadly similar to Bohr's position, but with more sort of anthropocentric slant. Right? So it was always bringing the, the human, the human spirit and so on into it. And you know, the line that we just heard, if nobody were in the house, I believe the table would exist all the same, but this is illegitimate from your point of view. Right, is, is, is Einstein sort of pointing this out. Right? He was a believer in science's liberating ability to understand the extrapersonal world. Now, further evidence of his identifying with Bohr, uh, Tagore with Bohr, is, uh, is evident in Einstein's um, 
promising a chapter on pacifism in the Tagore Fesh Shrift, which was being edited by Romaine Rolland, I think, and um, it was called The Golden Book of Tagore. And um, instead of submitting a, a note on pacifism, Einstein submits uh, at the last minute one on causality and determinism. Right. So again, you know, in, and in, in that he says, if the moon in the act of completing its eternal way around the earth were gifted with self-consciousness, it would feel thoroughly convinced that it was traveling its way of its own accord on the strength of a resolution taken once and for all. <laughs> so determinism does not stop before the majesty of our human will. Maybe we and human society require the illusion of freedom in our human activities. Right? So this is him addressing this whole issue of the nature of reality. Now let's move on to the dialogue on the nature of truth. Right? Mathematical truth. Now while Einstein, I think, was a perfect gentleman with, uh, with Tagore, Bertrand Russell was not. Right? <laughs> and, um, and, you know, uh, so let's, let's, let's tear apart Russell. Right. So, um, Russell and Whitehead's Principia Mathematica, which was written 1910, 1912, 1913 in three volumes, uh, was an audacious attempt to describe a set of axioms and inference rules in symbolic logic from which all mathematical truths could in principle be proven constructively. Um, as such, this is an ambitious project which is of great importance in the history of mathematics and philosophy, being one of the foremost products of the belief that such an undertaking might even be achievable. So tremendous achievement. So from 1910 to about 1930, the dictum was, Principia Mathematica implied mathematics is complete. Nothing true is beyond its reach. And that is the world, uh, sort of the scientific view with which Einstein meets Tagore. Right? And so you, there is a little bit of that, um, that hard notion of truth that, that comes up in Einstein's dialogues with Tagore. However, something incredible happens in 1931. Kurt Gödel, who's a 25-year-old mathematician in Vienna proved something called the incompleteness theorem. Right? That definitely, that definitively establishes that Principia Mathematica and in fact any other attempt could never achieve the lofty goals that it set out to. That is for any set of axioms and inference rules proposed to encapsulate mathematics, either the system must be inconsistent or in fact there must be some truths of mathematics which cannot be deduced from them. So this is a very, very powerful theorem. And the proof of the incompleteness theorem is self-referential. So it actually, it's mathematics talking about itself. And in a way, he's actually using a very deep idea of Leibniz that you know, symbolic logic and arithmetic are, are equivalent in some sense. And Hence, the self-referential nature of his proof led uh, Hofstadter to write Gödel, Escher, and Bach. Right? Because 
he talks about self-referential ideas there. But Gödel's theorem is not a negative result per se, although it's often perceived so. It just says that you can discover other kinds of truths that may be beyond your mathematical formalisms, but they are nevertheless truths. Right? So Einstein meets Gödel in 1933-34 when Gödel comes for the first time to Princeton on a sabbatical. And, and my uh, position here is that perhaps if the Einstein-Gödel interactions had happened before he met Tagore, again, there might have been a difference in, in the way the nature of truth is established in Einstein's mind. But his association uh, with Gödel begins in earnest in 1940 when Gödel actually joins the institute. Uh, of advanced study at Princeton, and uh, their, their, their association becomes very strong. And for about 15 years, they go for these long walks, and nobody knows what they talked about. Right? <laughs> and um, Einstein once remarked to Oscar Morgenstern, the game theorist, um, that he went to the institute uh, chiefly to walk home with Gertie. <laughs> <Right>? <laughs> so that was the only reason he showed up at the office. Right? And there's a, there's a German sort of version of that that I won't attempt that. But, you know, the whole point is that the Einstein-Tagore dialogues might have been different if this had happened after the other. Um, and now finally, I think as I had mentioned to uh, Vijay Patti last week, I'm returning to this topic after 20 years or so. Uh, in the late 90s, uh, Professor N. Mukunda at the Institute of Science dragged me along to Shantiniketan, right, uh, to attend a, a workshop conducted by the SN Bose uh, National Center for Basic Sciences on the nature of reality in arts and science. Uh, this was in March of 1998, and uh, philosophers and artists came to discuss their ideas in relation to those of scientists, and so I do have a strong sense of deja vu here. Uh, I consider myself an official member of the Amitabh Ghosh fan club. <laughs> I'm sure many of you are too. And so when I was preparing for the meeting at Shantiniketan, I realized uh, that the Calcutta chromosome had just won the Arthur C. Clarke Prize for science fiction. I decided to leverage the use of virtual reality that Ghosh uses very strongly in that narrative and um, leverage that as the theme of my lecture. As you might imagine, it raised a few eyebrows. <laughs> uh, now, 20 years later, um, you know, realistic, lifelike holograms of political candidates have been used to mesmerize voters at multiple <laughs> locations in 2014, <laughs> right? Fake news, you ain't seen nothing yet. Screams the Economist just a fortnight ago. Like it or not, manufactured reality is all around us. A confession. I'm a co-promoter of a virtual reality startup <laughs> called Vizara Tech. It's a reality Delhi. So what I thought I would do is, uh, in the spirit of my virtual reality remarks at Shantiniketan, um, I conjured up a modernist fantasy 
as an imagined conversation between Einstein, Herbert Simon, and Tagore on artificial intelligence that occurred last Sunday in my mind. <laughs> so Herbert, we'll go chronologically backwards in Nobel Prizes, right? So Herbert Simon, the 1978 Nobel Prize in economics and also the founder of the field of artificial intelligence, says, the natural sciences describe natural objects and phenomena. The sciences of the artificial describe artifacts that result from human intervention in the natural world. Much of our daily world is artificial, from the climate, controlled air we breathe, to the automobiles we drive, or drive themselves, and the laws that dictate how fast we may drive them, or they may drive themselves. I proclaim that the goal of the sciences of the artificial is to devise artifacts to achieve goals. Right? So these are actually Simon's words. I, I didn't actually make that, make up anything there, except drive themselves. And so so Rabindranath Tagore, 1913 Nobel Prize in Literature, responds, I would define artificial as produced by art rather than by nature. Affected, not pertaining to the essence of matter man-made and hence reflective of human spirit. And Albert Einstein, 1905, Nobel Prize in Physics, ends it all with, artificial intelligence is no match for natural stupidity. <laughs> <laughs> Thank you. Thank you.